0: Hi, you're listening to the Law and Blockchain Podcast. This is your host, Amy Wan. The Law and Blockchain Podcast is part of the To the Extent That podcast series by the American Bar Association Business Law Section. The ABA Business Law Section podcasts provide general information and are not a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ABA Business Law. At AmericanBar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi again, everybody. It's Amy Wan, and this is the second episode of the Law and Blockchain Podcast. I'm joined here again by Daniel Rice, who is a veteran technologist from the fintech, legal tech, um, entertainment industry, and much more. He's been in blockchain for a good while since blockchain and Bitcoin haven't been around for all that long. So Dan, thanks for joining us again.
1: Awesome. Thanks for
0: having me again. (laughs) So on this episode, we're going to briefly introduce another technology that many attorneys have been particularly concerned about in the blockchain space, and that is smart contracts. And I like to say that smart contracts are neither smart and sometimes they're not even contracts. But Dan, why don't you tell us what is smart contract and where did the concept come from?
1: Yeah. So the initial concept of smart contracts was, it's a term that was actually coined by Nick Zabo. And Nick Zabo is someone who came up with something called BitGold around the year 2000. And that was kind of a precursor to Bitcoin in the sense that he had a lot of the concepts down to how Bitcoin would work. And Bitcoin was not something that was actually built. It was just a it was actually a written text article about how a online cryptocurrency could be developed. And so in some of his talks, he talked about doing more advanced things uh, with the net- a network decentralized network like that, such as running scripts. And some of those scripts could do things like transfer money based on certain triggers that could exist. And so a lot of times the way I think about smart contracts is it's similar to a put option on a stock or just a limit order. It's something where you set it up, it looks for a certain trigger, and at, at a later point, it actually can execute without any human intervention. And that's similar to how your, you know, a typical stock account works. The main thing that people are referencing when they originally were talking about smart contracts, though, is that it's running on top of a usually public cryptocurrency or blockchain network such that it can't be stopped. And for example, a court order wouldn't stop it because there's no human intervention required for it to execute. This node of computers is going to transfer these funds and execute this code, no matter what anyone thinks about it, depending on what the code says. And so lately, we've started to see uptake on the enterprise side for the concept of smart contracts, but a little bit different than that. When enterprise talks about smart contracts, they're usually just talking about Code automation relating to money in a lot of cases. So we see discussions of insurance policies, the auto payout based on a certain water level existing in a certain place, those types of things. And they're described as smart contracts because the code self is automated and self executes. Although in those cases, usually it's not running on a distributed system, but it might just be running on their Amazon account, something like that.
0: Right. I I always like to explain to other attorneys that smart contracts are like conditional sentences. When we are all applying to law school, we have to take this exam called the LSAT. And they have this entire logic game section where you have to diagram things out. And there's a bunch of if-then statements, right? If A, then B. And so that's that's usually how I explain it to people. I think in Nick uh, Sabo's original paper, where he introduced the concept of smart contracts, he made a couple of very interesting uh, examples. One was that of a vending machine, right? You put in a quarter, or I guess nowadays a dollar, and a soda or something automatically comes out. Or he envisioned that one day, you know, rental cars could be on smart contracts where, you know, if there's a payment, then the car automatically unlocks for you and works. But you know once you stop making payment then after you take care of some safety concerns to make sure you're not stopping in the middle of the road um the the car would basically not work for you anymore and so i think that's how people originally envisioned all this stuff but why don't you tell us a little bit about um the ethereum blockchain and the dao hack and what has ended up happening with smart contracts
1: sure so Ethereum is probably the first popularized version of a smart contract oriented blockchain and still the largest of the ones that are Turing complete scriptable, which means that it can do anything that a software program could normally do in the confines of the system. Bitcoin has some scripting, but it's fairly minimal. So there's some argument online about whether or not Bitcoin it has a smart contract language or not, but generally it's considered that Ethereum is the big player there. Ethereum has a few interesting characteristics. Once you publish a contract, you actually can't delete it. It's immutable. So that creates some interesting ramifications. One is that if you know software at all, typically there are a lot of bugs that get shipped with software. And typically there's, I mean, as we all know on our phones, we're constantly getting updates for everything. Our computers are constantly updating because Software is very imperfect, but actually in the case of smart contracts, you have to cross your fingers really hard that you didn't make any mistakes when you published it. That's the kind of the, the underpinning of how Ethereum smart contracts work, and they generally are used to transfer some type of token around on the network. There are other use cases for it, but that's really the large one that's being seen, and the really first big takeoff smart contract was the DAO. The idea behind the DAO was that it was a distributed autonomous organization. And how that would work is that there would be a whole bunch of members who would buy into this DAO and they would have DAO tokens. And all the funds that they put into this DAO and and Ether would be held inside of it and everyone could vote on how to use those. And their plan was that they were going to vote on proposals to fund certain things that could potentially profit the DAO, and the DAO could become more valuable over time. There's a lot of interesting governance questions about whether or not that even makes any sense compared to a, a typical corporation, and is it really more efficient? Or you know, I think there was a lot of naivety to it on many levels. But what ended up occurring is as soon as the network launched, there was a bug in the code and someone was able to suck all the money out of the DAO. Although white hat hackers at the same time discovered the issue was occurring and were able to kind of freeze the funds from actually getting fully out. And then all of the Ethereum network ended up getting forked. So there are now two versions of Ethereum that are out there. There's Ethereum Classic that still has the DAO hack fully occurred, the DAO hack carry, was fully carried out on that one network. And then Ethereum, as we know it today, is actually a fork of that network where certain transactions or certain accounts were blacklisted based on what occurred during the uh, the DAO hack to basically make sure that the hacker didn't get anything
0: out of it. So the DAO, which is basically this decentralized or distributed venture fund, in in my opinion, Um, they had their own um, corporate governance, if you will. And their philosophy was code is law. But because the Ethereum chain was so young at the time and they ended up forking that into today's Ethereum chain, doesn't that go against the code is law principle? I mean, I thought blockchain was supposed to be immutable.
1: It's interesting. So, there's obviously this whole legal concept of the spirit of something that's written on the Slockit website, which was the company developing the DAO. They had written into their terms something to the effect of if there's a discrepancy between our description of this product on our website and the code itself, the code is the true uh, embodiment of this uh, agreement. So, in other words, if there if, if there are differences between the two, assume that the code is correct and that this text on our website is wrong. And that ended up being very funny in the end because the difference between the two was that there was a bug in the code that allowed someone to extract all the funds. And so there was this ongoing joke about did did the hacker actually do anything wrong because the terms stated that the code was actually the correct version of the contract. Uh, and um at that time, uh, I really didn't know much about law, so I was very curious, and I, I still am to this day, um, around a lot of the legal questions with the DAO, and I think because it was so early on and a lot of the people involved were knew that it was very experimental, I, I'm actually surprised by how little legal activity has come out of the DAO considering what occurred. Um, I was more curious to hope that some of this would end up in courts so that we could find out how it played out, you know, but I'm always curious to talk to lawyers about
0: what they think on this topic. Yeah. So it's interesting, as you mentioned before, for us, when it comes to a contract, there is contractual intent and what, what was the meeting of the minds or what were people really envisioning versus what is actually on paper or in this case, what is written in code, right? And to the extent those two differ, um, different people take different interpretive approaches and and that I guess that brings us to the next question, which is are smart contracts even contracts because even the ethereum founders later have tweeted, you know, oh, we wish we didn't call it smart contracts. we should have just called it programmable scripts because that's really what they are. they are execution mechanisms for of intent, but whether they are legally binding or or an actual contract, that's a, a genuine question. You know, in law school, when we, you know, contract law is one of our black letter law classes. And whenever we take contracts law, it's all about how people break contracts and the ramifications, right? It's not actually about creating contracts in, in many cases. And one of the first things that they teach us is a contract is offer acceptance and consideration, which is you know, some sort of payment or, or something that you are giving up and And so given that that is what attorneys think of as a contract? Does that really comport with what a smart contract is?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And there are definitely cases where a smart contract is not a contract. I I think that's definitely true. Um, I think the the question is more on the side is, is a smart contract ever a contract? One of the interesting problems there is because a smart contract is code, there's a heavy burden on the reader to not just read something that's you know in their language that they speak it's actually written in code form and the funny part about it is there's actually cases too where the code has been correct but there's been say a compiler bug such that even though the code looked correct when it was read at a lower layer in the system it wasn't executed correctly i think it's it's a really hard case to make that this you know this type of arrangement would stand up as legally binding in a lot of cases, but it also depends what are you using the smart contract for exactly. On public networks, it's typically around funds being transferred. And on private networks, we're seeing a lot of use of the ledger just for things like data sharing and things like that, which which creates a, a lot of different use cases.
0: You know, it's funny because Back in 2017, I remember there were all these startups popping up that said, hey, we are going to create a template library of smart contracts for people to use. It's going to be the legal Zoom of smart contracts. And I think even Rocket Lawyer got onto this boat at, at some point. And I remember looking at this and thinking, hmm, well." As an attorney, I know that many people go on, you know, LegalZoom is is a great thing for many people, but at the same time, many people go and get a LegalZoom template. They don't even read it, or if they read it, they don't really understand it. And so they end up executing something and several months later, they go back and read it when a problem arises and think, well, that's not really what I meant, right? And I see that same question for smart contracts, except the issue is, even more compounded because at least many people read some sort of written language or english if you will how many people can read computer code i've i've got to think it's far less than than those who can read written language
1: yeah so i think the stats that i had pulled up quite a while ago is it's like less than 1% of the world's population considers themselves to be code literate and not only like keep in mind if i were to read someone else's code, I might find bugs in there, but that doesn't mean I found all the bugs that exist. So it's not just like, it's it's also like what level of comprehension is required. You know, my daughter, she's in first grade, she could read at a first grade level, but she's not going to be able to necessarily read a contract enough that she's going to understand it. It takes a very high level of competence to read code and be sure that you understood the intent of it without testing it out and executing it. It's a very involved process to get right. The number of people on the planet that are really competent and capable of doing that is is relatively low. It's must, much lower than the number of people that say speak English or another language, any any of the popular languages in the world. So it's it's an interesting problem. And then you could end up in a, in a situation where you're needing someone who is an expert to look at the code. And so if it's, It's an attempt to create a legal contract. You now have potentially a lawyer, a coder, and then you as the third party involved in that arrangement. And at any piece of that, there could be a mistake made that affects the risk of that arrangement of that contract.
0: Right. And then, you know, in the legal world, we have certain parts of contracts that are very concrete. Right, and then there are other parts that are not nearly as concrete. So, for example, whenever we use the word "substantial" or "reasonable," that you know, you know, it's, I feel like it's very difficult to code around that, and so that brings obviously a further complication. But going back to what you were saying earlier, in terms of you know the number of competent people who can really deal with this technology, I think the stats reflect that. We had discussed previously that in 2017, with all the activity going on, even though it was a very nascent industry, over $1 billion in value was lost in 2017 from smart contract errors. And you know who knows what it was in 2018, 2019, although the industry's died down a little bit. And for folks in this audience, um, Dan and I ended up embarking on a two-year project or journey into figuring out what happens when the code executes in a way that the creators did not intend, right? And so we're no longer doing this today, but we were working on building a whole dispute resolution infrastructure around smart contracts. And what we saw in, for example, LegalZoom-type platforms was very similar to what we saw in smart contract type platforms in the sense that you know when you draft a contract you or when you draft a smart contract or code a smart contract you're going to have bugs you're going you know the intent of the parties uh, might change so you might need some sort of amendment there are many different things that can go wrong except with smart contracts the problem is exacerbated especially to the extent that you're using a public blockchain because there is no recourse you cannot undo things um Dan do you want to speak to that a little bit yeah i mean the example that i
1: like to give a lot is if i decided that i wanted to use ethereum network to send an inheritance to my child in 30 years and i'm going to put some ether on there i'm going to lock it up for 30 years and then it's going to be transferred to her account, let's say. If I accidentally punch in 300 years instead of 30 years, I may not ever be able, I won't get that money back. It's going to be locked up for 300 years, essentially. The funny thing about it is, you know, there are, there are obviously legal tools out there that provide a lot of immutability, like irrevocable trusts and things like that, that, that are out there. Um, but actually, the default setting for ethereum is that everything will be immutable irrevocable unchangeable imagine just all your contracts being like that and, and the thing that really struck me and talking to a lot of lawyers over the last few years is it's like you know a lot of times these contracts are changing as soon as the ink is on the paper it's still wet and you know there's modifications being made to contracts and things like that this is a complete nightmare for a smart contract and even today. On the public networks like Ethereum, uh, the companies that are serious about doing tech on Ethereum have created whole models around doing upgrades of their tech because these smart contracts need to be upgradable. And so they have these kind of like voting, complex voting processes to create an upgrade and get users to adopt it. And there's all types of attacks that exist. Uh, There was just one the other day where someone discovered a vulnerability in one of the largest uh Ethereum smart contracts that's called Maker DAO. And someone someone released info that basically because of their upgrade process, <laughs> it was possible for someone to upgrade the network to a version where they got all the money. So anyway, I guess what I'm getting at is even creating a mutability, affecting the immutability of these networks can cause additional vulnerabilities to the network. It's not actually safe to do so or it's very difficult to do it safely the more complexity you add to these contracts with the code that can't be modified easily, the more difficult it becomes to test them, to be sure that they're secure, and uh, to make sure that your funds aren't at risk over time.
0: So I think what I'm hearing is that human beings, in terms of their behavior, can be sometimes fickle or deals can evolve over time. But that type of behavior, that flexible behavior, is not necessarily reflected in smart contract technology, which is very rigid, right? Exactly.
1: It's it's as rigid as it gets in most cases, unless, unless the developers have done something special to make it not that way. And there are other networks that have different trade-offs. Like, for example, EOS, there is a way to upgrade a contract that's live. But the interesting thing is, if you're a user of a contract, the whole benefit of going decentralized and using a smart contract is you know that the code can't be changed later. That can be one of the large benefits. Let's say if, as an example we see today, there's a casino system where you're rolling a dice and you're just gambling using Ethereum. The nice thing that you can know is that the smart contract is never going to change. So if you if it's been vetted that it's a fair casino, then that can't change in the future because the code itself behind the smart contract is immutable. On the flip side, if you're using EOS, there is actually a flag that can be set to upgrade that contract. So you could start playing a gambling system where you are provably getting fair results and the developer could go and upgrade that code without your notification or your knowledge. And suddenly the game is skewed so that the developer wins every time. It's kind of a trade-off in a sense, but it's difficult in either direction. If it's, immu- if it's not immutable, there's huge security risk to sending your money over the wire with to individuals that you may not have a trusted relationship with. And that's really what's different here on a public chain is that you may not know who you're even communicating with on the other end. You may not know who controls the smart contract. It might be pseudo-anonymous, in which case you run the risk of even intentional methods of stealing your funds.
0: Well, let's talk about smart contracts and private permissioned chains for a second. If you have a closed network or consortium that is running smart contracts, I think the dispute resolution um, solutions there end up being less complex because you would essentially just probably revert back to the dispute resolution systems we have today, right? Like you said in the previous um, podcast episode, there are probably governance structures written somewhere that everyone's agreed to. There are probably paper or digital legal agreements. And so they can still go to mediation, arbitration, court. They can amend things as needed, right? Yeah.
1: And, and in in our quest and and kind of studying this over the last few years, the thing that we realized is the most common method of someone having an issue with a contract is that they get on the phone or meet in person with the other parties involved in the contract, and they all together agree to make a change to that contract. So it doesn't even get to any type of mediation or arbitration. It's just it's actually amicable in a lot of cases. And that's what's funny about this tech is even if it's amicable,
0: that doesn't mean you can make a change necessarily, so wow, very interesting. well, fantastic. If you want to know more about smart contracts, I also want to give a quick shout out to Professor Carla Reyes. She has actually published I believe a number of papers around the idea of you know legal applications of smart contracts, and she's hypothesized that smart contracts for small transactions are much more useful than obviously large complex transactions. So there's a lot of good material there. Dan, if people want to find or follow you, where should they look?
1: Yeah, I'm on Twitter. It's the Dr. Bits. It's the D-R-B-I-T-S. And uh, that's probably the best way to follow me and find
0: out what I'm up to. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this introductory episode on smart contracts. And in the next couple episodes, we're going to talk to legal experts in the space on very concrete, specific issues around law and blockchain. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series, To the Extent That... The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.